Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. See if I can get my stuff here put together and get my uh, self organized. Uh, okay, so hey, hello everybody. This is Dr. Todd Fredericks, Associate Professor of Primary Care. I am a residency trained family physician and I am at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and uh, I am based at the Athens campus. We have campuses in Warrensville Heights, which is a suburb of Cleveland, and we have a campus in Dublin, Ohio. And we are the largest medical school in the state of Ohio, which is saying something because we're larger than that school whose name shall not be mentioned is, and uh, we're a good medical school. I think we are. I've been doing some student interviews. I haven't done those in a while, and uh, everybody who's on faculty at OU is on, by default, the Student Selection Committee, and so I had a time to do some student interviews, and, and I'm really encouraged by our new class, at least the people that I've encountered, really qualified, really motivated, determined young people who are going to be, uh, in almost all cases, future physicians. Well, they all are future physicians, future potential physicians, most of them will be future physicians. How's that? Some of you may not know, if you're a layperson, that not everybody goes to medical school, finishes medical school. Uh, it, it gets, uh, it's, it's, it's not for the weak of heart. I mean, it, it, medical school is tough, and it should be tough. Uh, if for nothing else, then the public puts tremendous trust in us to do right by them. And you need to know that that doesn't come without a cost. It comes at great cost. It comes at cost of blood, sweat, tears, toil, um, anxiety, you name it. Trying to go through the, the crucible of becoming um, becoming worthy of being granted the public trust to, to, in some cases, do things that hurt them. I mean, I, sadly, this week, one of my uh, relatives, um, it looks like, They've contracted something really bad. Actually, that individual had another problem, a form of cancer, and it looks like it may have come back. Don't know yet, but it's it's terrifying. And uh, I've never taken it for granted that uh, patients are not customers. Patients are not clients. Patients are patients. They deserve advocacy, and they deserve people who will help take the burden of worry off them to the degree that they can by giving them um, informed confidence and and professional de- demeanor and behavior. Um, you guys may have seen the story of Patch Adams. Uh, Robin Williams played him in the movie about Patch Adams, but at the Gesundheit Clinic. Patch Adams was a professional. He just happened to use humor and a red rubber nose, red rubber nose to ease the burden of medical contact. Um, I am notoriously uh, known in many circles for wearing shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt in to see patients. And people say, well, that's just ridiculous. It's unprofessional. Really? I mean, Socrates wore, or Hippocrates probably wore a robe. I mean, who says that that's unprofessional? When it's hot, you know, Bermuda shorts are, are professional attire in Bermuda. Kilts are professional attire in Ireland. Um, if it diffuses a patient's anxiety 
uh, my credentials are on my wall and in the words I speak and the references and the quality of my work. And I believe me, I have a good number of patients that come to see me and have for years who are quite comfortable with how I dress in the clinic. And they're comfortable. I have one, I'll tell you one quick story. I had a uh, patient that for years was terrified to go to the doctor because his particular job occupationally, he had to have well-controlled blood pressure. And he was referred to me by a, uh, another one of my patients who said, yeah, go see Fredericks because he, I never feel anxious in his office. And sure enough, this guy came down. He'd been told by people, you know, he happened to be a pilot. He, wouldn't, he wasn't going to be able to fly because his blood pressure was out of control. And I said, look, man, we're just going to hang here for a little bit. And you're going to chill. And I'm going to walk around, do a little bit of work. And I'm going to come back and check your blood pressure in about 10, 15 minutes. And we're going to be okay. And so I checked his blood pressure. And by the time we were all done, he was in standard for his for his job. And his anxiety level visibly reduced. Because for him, what was terrifying was uh, people that looked like German rocket scientists. You know, the white coat dude with the clipboard, you know, getting ready to do something uh, you know, uncomfortably difficult for the patient uh, with this sort of, you know, detached look about them. And I don't do that at all. So one thing we need to learn is that, you know, uh, hubris is hubris and, and dogma is dogma and silos are silos. And there's different strokes for different folks. I know doctors who treat people in white coats and ties. I think it's probably getting close to tantamount to malpractice to do that, by the way, given infectious disease and what we know about how some of this clinical clothing can transmit it. However, their particular patient population wants to see him in a white coat and tie. I have a robust patient population of my own that doesn't care. When I had 50% of my patients in pediatrics, who are pediatric patients, years ago, I there was a company called Scrubs. I don't even know if they're still in business, but they, they sold bizarre scrub tops. Uh, and I would always wear scrubs because I, I, I read the British, <laughs> the British research on infection control and, and white coats and ties a long time ago. And I wasn't about to be, be that part of that problem. So I wore scrubs from the time I was a resident all the way through my practice. And I always have, you know, clowns and at Christmas time I put on Christmas trees or I'd, you know, have snowmen or something. And kids would love that. They'd come and see me because I'm this big guy and they weren't scared by that. And it's a much better patient experience when your patient isn't scared. They can be concerned, but if you, if they don't come in scared of you, I need to be someone that they trust and they're not scared of. I need to be their buddy. They need to be able to walk in and say, I trust Dr. Fredericks. He's like me. He's looking out for me. And if you're an aspiring physician, you should shoot for the same thing. And if your patient population is expecting you, and you have your concierge practice, and they expect you to be wearing, you know, a very expensive suit, tie, uh, business attire for women, whatever it is, then you do that. That's the market, the people that you're reaching, and that's what they feel comfortable with. But if you're like me, and a lot of your patients are self-made business folks and people who came up from nothing and are kind of Appalachians and rednecks and just comfortable with just taught first names. I'm good with that. I, I'm looking right now at my diplomas. I, I don't have to be called Dr. Fredericks to know what I am. And I think that's better for everybody. I don't know how I got off on that tangent. Okay. I know why I got off on that tangent because this is now like the 10th take of this because every time I realize after I've recorded it that I got too far in the weeds on stuff, I decided to re-record it. So this will be the last take. It has to be. Got to cover a couple things. Number one, a shift in my social media participation. Very quickly, I don't 
have any cable. I don't have any satellite because I don't do legacy media anymore. I don't do any kind of network TV. I don't want any part of it because it's just gotten to the point it's insufferable. I cannot stand not being informed and paying a lot of money every month to not be informed. Uh, number two, uh, the outro now shows that I have a MeWe account. If you want to contact me, you can go to at uh, Medical Cinema on Twitter. I still keep a Twitter account only really to make people aware that I've posted more rotations content or more creative content. I don't participate on Twitter. I deactivated my other account. Um, 30 days, it's gone into the vapor. I'm about ready to completely check out of Facebook. I got a few things I'm a little concerned about, about how to work around, but I'm basically going to deactivate my Facebook account. That all comes out of a C-SPAN, a C-SPAN supplied interview with Congress between Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg in the Congress, where basically I finally realized if I nearly 30 years ago swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States of America from all powers, foreign and domestic. I could no longer, with good conscience, participate in Twitter and Facebook. I've got a problem because YouTube is a very good platform for media. Um, I'm not as convinced that Rumble is as easy to use, but MeWe is the Facebook alternative, M-E-W-E, and Parler is the Twitter alternative. You're going to hear all sorts of things about conspiracy theories and you know how it propagates bad things. If you're on any of those platforms, look at I trust you as the American people and the people who listen to me to be discerning enough to look at stuff and say, yeah, I'm not sure that makes much sense and question it. What I'm not comfortable with is uh, people who have billions and billions of dollars using you as a product to, to reach their advertisers and in the process censoring anything from you. We are Americans. Censorship is not in our DNA. You have the right to consume what you want when you want it and be able to sort through it on your own. These people fundamentally don't think you're capable of doing that. And I've gotten into very vigorous debates with uh, colleagues who seem to think that you're not smart enough to figure out what the truth is. And believe me, the smartest people I know are not in academics. I know some really smart people in academics, but most of the smartest people I know are people that don't even have college degrees. They're hard knocks, grew up in life people who have a lot of common sense. And they'll say, yeah, that may not make sense. Or yeah, that could make sense. Um, confirmation bias is alive and well in academics. Don't fool yourself. Any honest academic will tell you that. So if you want to get a hold of me and you want to criticize me or tell me I'm a delusional, go to MeWe. Um, my partner account is under a nomiker, a pseudonym. So I do that to distance myself from my own comments. I'm very, very proper in my comments, but, um, I do live in the real world. I do live with real politics, but MeWe is TR Frederick's on MeWe, and I'm happy to entertain things, and we'll have discussions that are good. Um, if I do maintain a Facebook account, uh, it will be not responded to. I'm not going to be the product for Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg spends $23 million a year on his own personal security. I'm not paying him anything, so someone's paying him for that. They're the customer. I don't want to be his commodity. I'm a free person in a free country. I'm no, I don't want to be anybody's commodity. I'm not cynical enough to believe that I'm, I'm just resolved to that. And you shouldn't be either. And you should make it very clear that you're not wanting to be a commodity. That said, Facebook is a, a very powerful tool for connecting people. It's a very powerful tool for allowing families to keep in contact and messaging. It's, a, it's very robust. It's very well designed. There's no question about that. In fact, it's so well designed. And you can look at this on legacy media. And when I say legacy media, I'm not saying mainstream media. I'm saying the media that has decided to selectively censor as well. Because they say, well, this is this is we can't, you know, fact checking or whatever they're using now 
half the time the fact checking doesn't come with its own vetted who are the fact checkers I like to say who watches the watchman for those of you guys who like pop culture you'll recognize that from the comic book series the watchman who watches the watchman who is looking after the people who are ostensibly looking after your interests when you are the commodity it's just a question to ask it's something that all academics should be prepared to answer um, and I don't like politicization of free speech at all, period, full stop. People should be allowed to say what they want to say when they want to say it. I don't care how vulgar it is. I don't have to listen. I can walk away. I don't have to look at their feed. If they want to say something that I find personally offensive, I can just go away, right? I don't want them blocked because if, if we're censoring one group of people, that means we're going to end up censoring other groups of people. And pretty soon you have a memory hole and George Orwell comes true and it's bad. So... Ah, oh, that's a long intro to that. So what happened this week? And hopefully Don's episode goes up right after this one, maybe one day separate. I'm going to start editing here in just a minute. I got a couple meetings for curriculum ahead of me, plus uh, an IRB meeting. Um, what happened was, uh, for the last months, many months, I have been working with the vaccine working group in the state of West Virginia. Uh, and I do so in my capacity as a National Guard officer, the senior medical officer for the state of West Virginia, National Guard. And I am there because I can work as a liaison to help answer questions about military operations, process, link people in public service to people, resources in the military as we tackle COVID-19. And I specifically have been focusing on vaccines. Around the country right now, what you're watching is a massive effort. And again, I don't pretend to know anything about this. Oddly enough, I live in Ohio, but I don't pretend to know what's going on in Ohio because I, I don't participate in Ohio. Uh, my, I, I've been in the West Virginia National Guard now for 30 years or going on 30 years, principally because the units closest to me in Southeast Ohio were in West Virginia and because I had a better experience in the West Virginia Army National Guard 30 years ago or 25 years ago when I transferred states. Um, I don't know what it's like now. I have friends in the Ohio National Guard and they're good folks and the Adjutant General of the National Guard I deployed with. He's a great guy and um, I, I, I have nothing but love for the man. And so whatever they're doing, they're doing, but I assume it's going to be something similar to what we're doing. The differences are in demographics, and that is Ohio is 10 times larger than West Virginia. So the problem is bigger, but they have more people to deal with it. So the flavor variations are there, right? So what I'm describing is chocolate chip. They may be Dutch chocolate almond. I don't know, but it's going to be ice cream, okay? What's going to happen here is um, in the next week, Pfizer will have vaccine deployed. In our context, we're not worried about vaccine getting to us. What we're worried more about is getting vaccine distributed. It's a it's not a trivial problem. Let's talk about briefly the history of COVID-19 uh, as a disease, but let's talk about, more importantly about SARS-CoV-2 as the actual agent. So SARS-CoV-2, severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus number two. There was an original SARS, that would have been appropriately SARS-CoV-1, but they just call it SARS. Now we have SARS-CoV-2. That's the virus that causes COVID-19. COVID-19 is really a, a, a syndrome, right? A syndrome of, of everything from nothing, no symptoms at all, to death, right? Really bad ICU experience death, largely in elderly people and people with disabilities, although there are a rare number of people who are younger that will get this disease and, and, and not do so well with it. But very, very small numbers. Like under the age of 60, your odds of 
surviving COVID-19 are measured out to the, you know, hundredth and thousandth decimal point. I mean, 99.99% survival rate below the age of 60. And even above the age of 60, you have above a 90% chance of survival. I believe that's still true. Okay, so forgive me if I'm misquoting. I haven't looked at the recent data, but it is bad because it's what we call a novel virus, meaning no one until COVID hit had any immunity to this thing. There could be some similar immunity. You know, variolation was a process by which we made people somewhat immune to smallpox by imme- by, by vaccinating them with cowpox. Um, that was the first um, use of that, really, uh, historically. So some similarities with other coronaviruses, which caused the common cold, may be at play in giving some of us partial immunity to SARS-CoV-2 and not developing the infection or we get a less severe infection. The virus did originate in China. And as you can see from last week, the Chinese have not been completely above board about what they've been doing. And and believe me, anybody who understands this know that that wasn't the case. I have some academics who are woefully naive, but any of us who have been in the military know the Chinese are a communist country with a very specific vested interest, number one, for the senior leadership of the Communist Party of China to stay in power. And if they divulge absolute transparency, they won't be in power very long. You guys got to remember, in 1989, the Soviet Union fell. The reason why the Soviet Union fell largely was because of information transfer from Western Europe into Russia, Ukraine, Poland, uh, Belarus, um, you know, Georgia. The, the Soviet Union fell because people got information and realized the world isn't what we've been told, right? This is what communist socialists like to do. They like to deceive people to keep power. So do capitalists, for that matter. I mean, Jack Dorsey and and Mark Zuckerberg ostensibly are capitalists, and they're manipulating information like crazy. But the difference is is that we've got lots of sources of information we can go to. Uh, The Russians had a term for people who were complicit with um, the uh, Communist Party. Uh, Useful idiot, right? We have our own useful idiots in this country who want to say that uh, that certain sites aren't, aren't violated because they're giving disinformation. That's called a genetic fallacy, by the way. If you, if you criticize the validity of the story based upon the vehicle it's delivered in, that's a genetic fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. It's incorrect. And an intelligent person that says that, well, you can't trust that because it came out of Newsmax, that's called a genetic fallacy. And that tells me you've got a problem. You are biased. You need to, you need to deal with the information at hand. Okay, a lot of disinformation in SARS-CoV-2, and we need to be aware of that. So, um, originates in China. On the west coast of the United States, the strains that we see of SARS-CoV-2 are largely Wuhan strains or variations thereof. And that stands to reason, because before the travel uh, restrictions, we had about 400,000 people or so coming in and out of the United States from China every month. I think that was the number, 400,000 a month. It was, it was massive, mind-boggling to me, actually. Um, and they were coming into universities. They were coming uh, to work for, for, for uh, the government in diplomacy. They were uh, tech people, they, all sorts of people. Our people going over, right? Uh, and so it's probable that we had SARS-CoV-2 in our country long before January. It was probably, I would say, we probably given the, the total numbers of people you got to have to get a real good infection going, maybe even September. Uh, for sure, November, December, there were people with SARS-CoV-2 in the United States. The eastern part of the United States is largely affected by European strains of, of SARS-CoV-2, but those all came from China, too, because... The Chinese would go into Europe to do business, Africa to do business, the Middle East to do business, and Wuhan strain coronavirus mutated 
and became European designated strains. And there's ways of looking at the genetic footprint of the virus to determine this. But on the East Coast of the United States, you see largely, and you can, by the way, look at the internet and they'll break it down by state if you want to, what the predominant strains of corona are. Based upon this, we saw the massive uh, plead for help. We saw the fact that we had a disrupted supply chain, that we had not been doing our due diligence for critical strategic resources in the private sector. The federal government has PPE resources. The federal government has ventilator resources. But it's not the federal government's job to fix the problems of the state of California. That's why we have a federalist system. That's why the state of California has a governor who can, say, ban restaurant attendance when my own governor says you can go out to restaurants, right? And we do, by the way, we do. And um, and that works for people. That's how you keep a country of 330 million people together by giving them flavors and variations that appeal to them. Um, but it is the public, it, 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 it's it's the, let's just use Kaiser. And I, I, I'll be careful. I won't even, no, I wouldn't even use Kaiser because I don't know what Kaiser's situation is. So I'll be careful on Kaiser provides the healthcare to lots and lots of people and does a good job at it in many cases, in most cases probably. Let's just say Hospital Corporation X. Hospital Corporation X has a fiduciary and ethical and moral responsibility to protect its staff. Most hospital corporations did not have a giant warehouse full of PPE with the known historical precedent of pandemic disease 1918 uh, when coronavirus hit. They were dealing with uh, Six Sigma principles, just-in-time delivery, all the stuff that makes for very efficient logistics but makes for crappy response to serious disaster and we've got other disasters we've got hurricane katrina we've got lots of hurricanes that displace people from hospitals and the private sector failed their staffs by not saying what's the worst case scenario well the worst case scenario is pandemic disease how do we protect our staff against that for six months okay let's let's buy six months with the n95s we'll do it over time over 10 15 years and we'll put it in a warehouse and we'll cycle the stocks and we'll get them into circulation but we'll manage that Given what we spent on this thing, would it have been wise for a large hospital corporation to employ two or three warehouse managers to rotate stock of critical PPE in the event that we ended up with what we have now? I sure would. But they didn't. That's honest truth. And that's why we saw all those poor people who are in critical areas of healthcare that were crying out for help. In fact, just last week, I had a friend of mine who said that she had to buy her own papper replacement because she worn out the first one, 1500 bucks. She said the other ER doctors are doing it. A lot of the nurses are doing it because the hospitals still haven't caught up with that. And the funny thing is, is that at least in my state, we have mountains of PPE available for people who are really in a bad way and need it. But there's still a communication disconnect between, and it could be because of marketing. I don't know. I'm just going to say one option might be hospital, private hospital corporations have a vested interest in, in not giving the public a lack of confidence in what they do. And so I don't know. Are we going to report that we don't have adequate supplies? I don't know. But somehow or another, we've got staff members in the operational end saying, we don't have the things we need. I don't know. Where, that's a different story. But I'm sure it's not unique to any one place. I'm just saying that in this particular ER colleague of mine, um, they didn't have adequate supplies. And so I said, please, let your administration know, have them contact the hospital association in your state, different state from what I'm associated with, have them contact the hospital association, they will get through the channels, and I'm sure there's PPE available, it just needs to be uh, coordinated. Massive push to get PPE. Massive push to re-examine our relationship between a country that likes to seize PPE destined for us for their own use, which the Chinese did, stop supplies coming to us, and the inability for us to produce our own protective equipment. 
That's going to ripple for years across a lot of things. Okay. And let's just be honest, I'm using lots of Chinese products. I mean, probably the microphones and the recording equipment I'm using now are made in China. Probably I know my iPhone was, I know my iPad was, my Mac, my MacBook over there was. China produces a lot of stuff that we like. And they do so because they don't work under the same labor laws, they don't work under the same labor constraints, and, and they don't have to play by the same rules, which is the reason why. Uh, the current administration decided one way we can put the pain to them and make them play by the same rules is to start applying tariffs. And we can get into a whole debate about that, but you've been given a very clear demonstration of how the Chinese play in one area, admittedly PPE. Are you satisfied? That's just a thought question, okay? So then we zoom ahead and Operation Warp Speed is is put into play. And Operation Warp Speed is a program put in by the current administration that basically accelerated the development of vaccine. What you need to know is they didn't accelerate the safety side of it. They accelerated all the, oh my gosh, it's December and you know, we'll just slow down this sort of wait out period and the legal review because it's Christmas time. We don't need to do that. All that stuff has been forced into a compressed timeline. The safety scientific side has basically gone under normal timeline. Which says a lot, right? We've had this issue for years, most notably with people who have HIV, looking at drugs in development saying, can we at least try? Because we're not, you know, you have patients that don't no longer respond to normal conventional antiviral therapy, and they're willing to try something that's coming up and just to, just to survive, right? Pushing through some of the bureaucratic waste of time waste, bureaucratic time waste is what Operation Warp Speed did. So the same trials one, phase two, phase three, they've all been complied with. And everybody in Warp Speed had to sign safety pledges and saying, we will not sacrifice safety of development for the sake of speed. They won't. And I'm confident in that. I really am. I, I believe that to be the case. Um, so now we have two contenders. We have Pfizer and Moderna. Moderna's lagging about two weeks behind Pfizer. Pfizer's vaccine requires very low cold storage. It can be stored for six months at minus 80 C. It's about minus 176 Fahrenheit for, for people who come from the country that put people on the moon. And um, the Moderna vaccine is a minus 21 product centigrade. Um, so what is it? 40 below Fahrenheit, something like that. 50 below. I forget what it is exactly. But it, it's, it's more doable for a normal freezer. So Pfizer has some logistics issues. So one of the things that we've had to do as a vaccine working group, which is a consortium of public and private partners, including the National Guard, is come together and say, where are we going to put this vaccine once the CDC ships it? The CDC also wanted to have very specific ideas of who's controlling it, who's protecting it, who's keeping security on it. There are people who, for whatever reason, are already working to try to disrupt the vaccine distribution. They, th this is a fact. Uh, and so I won't go into specific details. I'll just say there's a lot of reasons why people want the vaccine to fail. They could be political. They could be uh, actual weaponization for a, a competitor like China or Russia to disrupt things and, and decrease U.S. confidence. It could be a lot of reasons. It could be just people who are non-state actors that decide that they're going to decide to try to do something anarchical or something. I don't know. But there's there it is there. So the CDC wants to know what's your security chains, what's the chain of custody's resources. We spent about $22 billion on, on Warp Speed for the vaccine companies to get vaccine to you. It's not trivial, okay? So there's a product called VAMS, V-A-M-S, which anybody who wants to administer vaccine will have to be involved with. But VAMS allows us to register patients, 
to be able to know what type of vaccine they got, the lot numbers, make sure that they're notified for the first and second dose with the proper vaccine. And not only that, but be able to account for wastage because here's the reality. I can give you 974 ship doses. I think it's 974. It's some weird integer there. It's not a round number like 1,000. It's close to 1,000, but not 1,000. The shipment comes out. I distribute you a, a two uh, vials of vaccine. From the time it's taken out of ultra-low cold storage, reconstituted, by the way, it's warmed up, it's not shot into your arm at minus 176. But what it does is once it's taken out of ultra-low cord storage on Pfizer, it starts to degrade. So you have about, oh, a little over a week to use it. And after that, it's not good. And it has to be accounted for in waste. Remember, we spent $22 billion. The General Accounting Office is probably going to want to know where'd that money go. So we need to know who got it, and we need to know when it was used, and we need to know what the side effects were, and, and, and all that stuff that's really important so that ultimately the FDA can approve it. Right now, the FDA has not approved it. It's given it an emergency use authorization. Approval is a different process. Approval is, we've tested this on millions of people, and it's, it's good. So yeah, go take it. Right now, you can get it under emergency use authorization, which means it's voluntary. Even the DOD, Department of Defense, cannot mandate that people get SARS-CoV-2 vaccine because it's under an emergency use authorization. It is both unethical and illegal to force people to get an emergency drug. They have to volunteer for it. So you do too if you get it. We want to make sure that we can account for waste, and VAMS will do that. So if a nurse drops a vial by accident, he comes five doses to the vial. If she drops a vial or he drops a vial, something happens, he gets distracted, then we can say we had to waste this vial. Just good accounting. It also allows us to look at adverse events, side effects, and even though Pfizer claims a 94 or 95% efficacy, I'm a little more cynical. I think it'll probably be somewhere in the 80 to 90% range because there's a selection bias with the people who participate in vaccine trials. And when we get it into widespread circulation, things just inevitably come up. But let me tell you something, an 80 to 90% effective vaccine is still pretty darn good. And it's what we, we need. We, it's much better than what we need to get this done. The other thing is, is that 100% of the people, which is the CDC's assumption, will not sign up for this vaccine because there's some very specific sociology associated with this. And I've said from the beginning, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 is as much a social psychology problem as it is a medicine problem. And I'm not talking at all today about the biologics that have been developed to attack COVID-19, immune therapy, call that immune therapy, and the other things that are still in process, actual drugs that can be used to help people who are critically ill with COVID-19. Just talking about vaccine, so you know what's happening. This week and next week, right before vaccine starts getting put into ultra-low cold chain freezers, what's happening is we've identified the storage sites, we've identified the security protocols, we're doing tabletop wargaming exercise. We shouldn't say wargaming. It is a war. We're fighting a war against a biological agent. Um, so wargaming and simulation to make sure that we can simulate what happens if something goes wrong in distribution. And remember, some of the health departments in parts of this country may only have one or two people, employees. They can't send someone out to go get vaccine. There are systems within the state that are used by state emergency services in every state where, they, where an agency that needs, a, needs something can say, I have a critical need, I'm putting in a request, and an organization like the National Guard can say, we can facilitate that. We can send a, a vehicle up, go get it for you, and bring it to you. That's one of the state emergency response functions of the National Guard. It's also the case that that health department with only two or three employees may be right next to a hospital that also has to go up and get vaccine from a storage site for their people. 
and they can partner together. And, and the National Guard, this, the vaccine uh, working groups, the, the, the joint interagency task forces that the state, some states will form can be the, the nexus to help coordinate those transfers and facilitate the distribution of critical resources like vaccines, like PPE, when, a, when people who don't know how to get it otherwise reach out and say, can I get help? In the state of West Virginia, there's an organization called Threat Preparation, Center for Threat Preparation. That's one of their functions is to be a clearinghouse to coordinate networking and communication between various agencies that have capacity to meet needs that you know otherwise wouldn't get connected. So about a week and a half after Pfizer shows up, Moderna shows up. And Moderna is easier to deal with logistically because it doesn't require storage at minus 176. And... Um, it also poses another problem because you can only get a booster with the same product you were started with. So if I get Pfizer shot one, I have to have a Pfizer booster. If I get Moderna shot one, I have to have a Moderna booster. When AstraZeneca, the other companies, if they're successful getting through all their test tri test phases, get out, they will have you'll have most likely have to do the same. Just remember that. But VAMS, that product I said that the CDC developed for tracking, has notification. So if you enter your text, I assume it's a, a SMS text type message or an email, it will notify you in three weeks and say, hey, you got Pfizer, time to get your booster or Moderna in X number of weeks. It, that's, it's, it's pretty awesome. If it works the way it does, it's going to be a really handy thing because then it will pour also into the state health department's vaccine records so that uh, anybody in the state, well, anybody can get VAMS can also look, but anybody in the state can say, oh yeah, you've already been immunized against that. You're good to go or whatever. Okay, so in the next month, we're going to see a whole lot of ups and downs. We're going to see uh, unantic the unanticipated, right? So in any uh, strategic problem, in any problem, tactical, operational, strategic, you have the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. And in the next two to four weeks, we're going to see a lot of unknown unknowns, okay? Uh, and that's okay, because there's a lot of really smart people. I mean, I was in a room yesterday with about 20-some-odd people from various agencies, Nursing Home Association, Hospital Association, the military, the CDC, the, the Department of Health and Human Resources. All of them are thinking about this, how to do right by the people that they're serving. You, the average person out there is wondering, how do I get protected so I can go see grandma? Um, and so... A lot of thought going into this, a lot of people trying to work every potential contingency, but we still encounter the unknown unknowns. When that happens, you need to be assured that we have agility. We have the ability to adapt to it, but it will be a little chaotic. The distribution graphs as plotted by the CDC uh, and warp speed are pretty realistic. So phase one will be the early adopters. This is the group of people that buys the iPhone 12. I don't buy the iPhone 12. It's too expensive. I don't know what's going to happen with it. It could be a dog. It's like Windows 7. That never worked right. Why would I get that operating system if this other one's working just fine? Let's let other people spend their money on that, right? That's that's the early adopter philosophy, the anti-early adopter philosophy. The early adopters are the people saying, yep, I'll sign up for it. I'm an ICU nurse. I'm a respiratory therapist. I'm sick and tired of going home to my significant other and not knowing if I'm going to give them the disease from work. I, I just want the peace of mind of a vaccine. I will be getting... SARS-CoV-2 vaccine because I'm a senior leader and senior leaders lead. Actually, all leaders lead. And if I don't roll up my sleeve, I can't very well go before 6,400 soldiers and airmen in the National Guard and say, yep, you go on and get that vaccine and tell me how it works out for you. No, I need to step up, take one for the team. And just so you know, based upon the data from Pfizer, the largest side effect is, is pain at 
the injection site, which is the same as flu. I always take Tylenol day of, day day before and day after, and that takes care of the achiness of my arm. I always get it in my non-dominant arm, my left arm, so that it, you know, it doesn't hurt when I write and I don't feel the achiness there. With my flu shot every year, I do it. And I asked one of our vaccine people uh, about that, and she said, yeah. She said, maybe avoid ibuprofen because it's a true anti-inflammatory and it might blunt the immune response, but Tylenol should be fine. Okay, so I can take Tylenol. My doctor has never said I shouldn't, and I know, because I am a doctor, I know I'm okay to take Tylenol, so I take Tylenol. If you can take Tylenol, consider it. Talk to your doctor about it, and the people get immunize you. In the initial phase one, I know for a fact that we will not have 100% uptake, because we never have 100% uptake. All the people eligible for phase one, and this is different from the, the vaccine trial phase one. Phase one are the people who have been selected to get SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. And just so you know, that is a political consideration. Vaccine working group can say, this is the people we think should get it, purely based on science. But the world doesn't work just purely based on science. The world works on something we call real politic with a K, real politic. You should look it up, Google it. Real politic is the real issues that go on. The vast majority of problems that we have faced have been in nursing homes. And so scientifically you say, if you have a limited resource, go get the nursing home staffs immunized first. But there's also the case that the people who make the senior decisions say, but we have these hospitals too. And it's not just COVID-19 patients that are in hospitals. It's people with heart attacks. It's people who need critical surgeries. We need to give reassurance to the hospital staff that are that are vulnerable that they're going to get vaccine, vaccinated too. So we need to put them in that mix. And then there's other people. There's the, caf, there's the cafeteria workers that go into the ICUs and the house cleaning staff. And there's people who are exposed all the time. How about uh, teachers? In, in secondary schools that have a risk of, of possibly getting transmission. How about that? And there's this big dance that goes on trying to meet the needs of a constituency of a lot of people with a limited resource. My feeling is, and I don't have this factually yet, but I think it'll bear out, is that we're only going to get about, initially in the early adopters, about 20 to 30% of people take the vaccine. The other ones are like, show me the money, right? Even the phase one people, the EMS workers, all those people are saying, ah, I'd rather wait a few weeks, a month to see what happens with my friend there who just got that vaccination. I'm pretty sure I already had COVID-19, so I'm just going to wait it out and see how they do with it. Nothing wrong with that. Um, the other day I got a, a paid the best compliment I can give, get paid when a paramedic who's worked for 20 some odd years came up and said his work offered him COVID-19 vaccine, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. And um, he said, I want to talk to you because I know that you're objective, you're a scientist, and you'll tell the truth. I thought, wow, you talk about you talk about uh, putting a, a burden on me, right? That's how he perceives me is that I will be objective. And so we had a long conversation, the same conversation, which is what prompted this before I put poor Don back up, so that you know the same thing. And I told him, I said. I will not, as you well know who listen to the rotations, you will know I'll never use the term anti-vaxxer. I think it's crude, it's boorish, and it's pedestrian, and it's wrong. Um, I say vaccine concerned. And I think that's entering the lexicon because I've heard more and more doctors using that term. I think they're smartening up and they realize it's it's really bad if you're, if you're literally your title as physician means teacher to name call for people who have questions. So I said, look, Steve, if you're a concerned person, wait, it won't make much of a difference, right? See if we're all walking. I mean, it'd be a really bad marketing strategy for a vaccine producer to kill off all the first responders and critical care 
physicians and nurses and, and, and technicians and all the people that are responding to COVID, that'd be a really bad marketing plan. I really don't think they would want to do that. So I think they're telling us pretty good truth about their vaccine. I have enough confidence in it, but I'm never going to fault you if you want to wait a little bit. Because sociologically, what's happening is that concurrently with the first doses of vaccine, and it really is better that we don't get 100% uptake because that allows us to reach a broader group of first adopters. So where if we had 100% uptake, the number of doses we get might not meet all the people in phase one because the first adopter phenomenon means that only 20 to 30% of people will want it. It means that we have far more vaccine available for those 30 to 40% across a wider swath to give, which means that those people will get, it'll be, it'll be better data. We'll get it further and further out. Maybe even in phase two, maybe, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, is that once people have confidence after it's, you really need about six weeks to make sure you haven't, you've identified all adverse effects, but let's say a month, four to eight weeks, they see that and they go, they're fine. Holy cow. Well, in the meantime, Pfizer and Moderna are still pumping out vaccine production. They're increasing their rates of production like crazy. So that slow uh, slope of phase one is beneficial to us because it allows production to catch up to demand so that by February, March, um, you will be looking at two things. One, does the FDA approve it because they have enough data now from millions of people getting vaccine to say, yes, this is safe. We will approve this drug, which the vaccine is a drug. It's a type of drug. Uh and two, we got the supplies to give it to anybody who wants and get it distributed. In phase one, it, the supply is largely controlled because it's a limited resource we want to get to a certain population that's critically vulnerable. In phase two, then you start to see, well, retail pharmacy can just order their own. They have the ultra low cold storage or they're using a vaccine that doesn't require that. They just order it knowing what their projected need will be and they start immunizing the population. You know, the grandmas, the grandpas, the elderly people, people with, with the medical disabilities that are more vulnerable. Um, all of which is to say that you need to watch this. It's, it's here. It is coming. There will be chaos in the first two weeks, and there will be a lot of confusion. Why don't I get it? You know, We even talked about this. Moderna has a reported efficacy greater than Pfizer's. We've already heard anecdotal reports of clinicians who say, well, I'll just wait for Moderna because it's more greater efficacy, right? It's, it's like, well, wait a minute. It's the same price as, you know, I get a Volkswagen or I get a Mercedes for the same price. That's the perception, right? So now we're in the marketing. It doesn't matter what the science is. They're close enough in efficacy that both my, my immunology buddy, uh, she and I both agree that it doesn't matter which one we get. We'll just take the first one we get, right? Um, ACIP, um, uh, what the, uh, the Advisory Council on Immunization Practices, uh, it's a CDC, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's ACIP. Anyway, they have not yet formalized this, but they're recommending, rumored, yeah, it's actually not a rumor. They, they're considering this deeply. That if you've had COVID-19 in the last 90 days, you shouldn't get the vaccine because you have antibodies. Why would you get the vaccine if you already have antibodies? So that's going to create a little bit even more confusion in people who are in phase one, quali they're qualified for phase one um, vaccination, but have had COVID-19 in the last 90 days. You probably shouldn't get the vaccine anyway. ASAP's going to say, don't do it because you already have antibodies. The third thing, it's not just two things, but the third thing that happens in phase one and phase two in the next month and a half or so is that serology becomes more prevalent. We just ran our first big serology event. We're going to run another big one in another week. Um, and we're getting good data on the validity of those molecular tests, PCR tests, looking at antibodies. How does that correlate? Um, and finding out that actually our molecular and antibody tests are pretty good. 
we haven't got the final data crunch and the, the total number of tested is still still too small to make conclusions. But we're going to find out that if you're symptomatic and you get a COVID test and you're positive, that you're probably going to show up with antibodies uh, in about three or four weeks. So let's get your serology testing. And the last thing we need to talk about is how much longer do we have to wear the masks? Well, I will tell you for a fact that probably for the rest of your life, when you go into a doctor's office between October and March, you're going to see people wearing masks, using a lot of hand sanitizer, preferably soap and water, but a lot of hand sanitizer too, and being very cautious. And the reason why is because flu has always been with us. It's a respiratory droplet disease. And now with COVID-19 and the price we paid for that, um, people are really taking it seriously. I always did. Like I, patients are coughing in the waiting room, put a mask on them. Put a mask on the patient in the waiting room. I don't want to give everybody in that room flu. It's a pain and it could kill them. You're going to see that ubiquitously. You're going to see less and less white coats, right? Um, you're going to see people wearing scrubs. Uh, proper clinical clothing can be laundered every day. And we're going to see, predictably, over the next many decade, a reduction in nosocomial infections. Those are infections you acquire as a result of simply being in a clinic or a hospital. We're going to see a reduction in that because hospitals are become cleaner places. I anticipate, not this year, 2021, but 2022, that pretty much from March through October, you won't wear a mask because there'll be enough people immunized. The doors will be open, ventilation will be occurring, there'll be some other advances in just room technology, lighting technology will help reduce the viral load in the air column, right? Some ultraviolet technologies that are very promising that as they get spread out, you, wherever room you're in, that airflow is being sterilized by ultraviolet light, either in the air conditioning system or in the actual light fixtures through LED technology. And there just won't be enough of a viral load in the air column to get you sick. By the way, it turns out there's a lot of data to show that the amount of virus in the air is directly associated with the severity of your infection. So if you have a few viruses and you get inoculated with it, you get a minimal infection. If you have a lot more viruses in the air, viral particles, you get a more severe infection. And that makes sense. We've known that for years with other things, but it, it's validating itself as time goes on. So ventilating rooms, ventilating schools. Here's a message to some people. Getting windows open in universities, getting the airflow exchange rapidly allows you to resume work with minimal risk. But the masks are going to be worn through mid-summer of 2021, and here's the reason why. If you don't have 100% efficacy in a vaccine, first of all, you can't mandate that people have COVID vaccine like other vaccines to attend school. So we can't, I think uh, meningococcal vaccine is, is required except under religious exemption or medical exemption. You can't do that with, with COVID, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine yet. Eventually the FDA will, um, will uh, approve the drug and then you'll probably be mandated to attend any higher education institution. You just won't be able to be in a university unless you've been immunized against SARS-CoV-2 if once approval occurs. And then, then you can make it compulsory to participate. But until those things happen, if it's only got a 95% efficacy, that means you could get a shot, you could get your booster and not get any immunity if you're one of the 5%. You need to wear a mask and you need to wash your hands and you need to maintain social distancing and avoid clout, crowds, close contacts, close spaces, just like the three C's we've always talked about. You need to do that until we get enough immunity in the population that now it's not as much of a danger much like it is with measles, right? Measles is around, but because there's so many people immunized against measles, you don't, if you're not immunized against measles, you still have an extraordinarily low chance of getting it because there's so many people that have had measles vaccine and are, are immune that 
you probably won't get it. The reality is if you spend an hour within a couple of feet of someone with measles, you're going to get measles if you're not immunized. And it's a, de it's a deadly, potentially deadly, certainly maiming disease. This is one of the reasons why when the vaccination rates fall below a certain level, people start getting a little bit crazy because they realize that herd immunity is going to drop off. And then the people who have sometimes many valid reasons for not getting vaccinated, maybe it's a religious problem for them in their mind or some other concern, now we worry that they're going to get it. I'm not worried about getting measles. I'm immunized, right? We worry that that person may get it and that people around them unknowingly could get it because they're infected. Same thing with SARS-CoV-2, which is why it's mandated. And we'll reach a steady state where we say, yeah, we can accept the fact that 70% of the population or 50% of the population, whatever the numbers come out to be, I don't know what the data will be, but are not immunized. And when the rates of COVID-19 infections, deaths, equals that of flu or drops below it a little bit, probably, um, we'll just accept it. I hope it's not accepted as the new normal. I hope that we still maintain rigorous hygiene and medical facilities, clinics, that sort of thing. And during what I'd like to call mask season, that's the time we start closing up shop. We don't have as much ventilation. We're not outside as much through spring when we start getting back outside and open the places up. I'm hoping that we have enough sense to, for most of us to go in with masks and reduce our drop what's in grocery stores and other places. And then when we come outside, we take our masks off and go about our business and don't worry too much about how conversation casually in the parking lot without a mask. Okay. Uh, I think I've covered it all. Uh, I wanted to talk about that because there's still a lot of fast and furious stuff coming. Uh, we talked about accountability from the CDC and VAMS. We talked about when you should expect, if you're not a critical responder, to get your vaccine. We're talking probably early next year. By, by June, Pfizer thinks it can produce enough vaccine to basically immunize half the country. I think that's the numbers at any time. I anticipate by March or April, if the vaccines have proven well, you'll be able to walk into any retail pharmacy and ask for a COVID shot, and you'll probably get it. Um, but early on, understand that there's a tension between the politics of, of interest groups and pure science of who should get it. And they, they work in a balance. And generally speaking, what I've seen in my own experience is that the senior leadership is dealing with real politic. The science folks, myself included, say, but this is the group based upon numbers and statistics you should do. And then they, they rattle it around for a while, and then they give a compromise that's completely reasonable where they say, we'll do them concurrently. And I remind them, and you'll probably be fine with that because the, the desired uptake on the voluntary vaccine will probably be below our total doses, and therefore we'll have plenty for anybody who wants it. That first follower is critical. As soon as the first follower, not the iPhone 12 early adopter, I'm using that as a brand, I'm sorry, but, um, but the person says, I will get that because that person did okay, I'm going to do it. When the first follower hits, that's when the big curve starts taking off because all you need is a first follower. If you ever want an interesting... Uh, uh, you ever want to see an interesting experiment in that? There's some research that was done on where they take people, you can YouTube it, you have to do a little Google work, I don't know the exact URL, but where they'll take a person without any music playing on a beach and they'll have them start dancing, just start dancing out on the beach. And people will look at them and they'll say, that person's crazy. And what that is is the first follower, or the first, that's the first early adopter. And then the, the researchers will have a plant and after about four or five minutes, the plant will get up and look. And, and so everybody can see it visibly happening. He'll look at him and kind of cock his head a little bit. And then he'll, he or she will start dancing. That's the first follower. The first follower is critical in any social movement because the early adopter is potentially crazy. And what people are looking for is what Cialdini, C-I-A-C-L-D-I-N-I, -I, the social psychologist, calls social proof. 
how am I supposed to behave in this context? And the first follower validates the social proof. Well, what you're supposed to be doing right now is dancing even though there's no music. And you'll just see on the research videos, all these people start getting up and start dancing. They don't even know why they're dancing. Because most human beings are herd animals. They, 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 they just want to make sure that they're doing the thing that is acceptable culturally and is considered normative. So anytime you're being manipulated, by the way, there's social psychologists, marketing psychologists are very familiar with this. Uh, if you ever want to read a really good book, I'll keep plugging it, Influence by Cialdini. I make the junior officers read it because it's a double-edged sword. Uh, the, the, the elements of social psychology can be used as a leadership tool in a positive way, or they can be wielded maliciously to manipulate people. I try to teach the younger folks how to use it in a positive way and not manipulate people with them, but they're very good, right? Uh, social proof is a big one. Reciprocity is another one you need to bring. You know, if I give you a cookie, you feel obligated to do something for me. And, and, and by the way, the value of what I give you has very little, very little to do with how much you're willing to give me in return. It's simply the act of giving you something that gets into the concept of reciprocity. Very powerful things. The last thing I want to uh, promote, which I think you might find, because if you're like me and you're stuck in the Rona zone and you, you, you haven't been able to go on a vacation or do anything, or even if you do go on a vacation... Stuff You Should Know. Search it on Apple Podcasts or whatever you like, Stuff You Should Know. I started listening to it, and it's it's like rotations, I think, in some ways, or we're like them, in that it's pretty casual. It's two guys that apparently are good friends, and they talk about interesting things, and they go into pretty good detail about explaining them. And I really enjoyed listening to Stuff You Should Know. My daughter-in-law turned me on to that. She's going to be a nursing student. She's going to be a nurse. She's just about ready to finish up at Akron, another great Ohio university. Go Zips. I'm a bobcat. I just say that for her sake because I love her to death. Um, but she said, you should listen to Stuff You Should Know. And I did. I started listening to it. I had to do some driving yesterday to go down to these meetings for the vaccine groups. And I was on the road for about four hours. And, and so I listened to Stuff You Should Know. And I hope that they get some more listeners from it because I think you'll really like it. It's very good topics. I listened to a whole deal on caffeine, which I learned quite a bit about caffeine. And as a person who's had some caffeine this morning, it was nice to know that it's affecting adenosine on my neurons and I'm getting a dopamine hit and that's why it makes me feel better. Uh, okay, so with that, I'm going to stop this. Go to MeWe, T.R. Fredericks at MeWe. You can ask me questions. Um, you could also go to Medical Cinema, but I only check it when I post something new. So if you give me a comment, I won't see it otherwise. Uh, and uh, with that, I bid you a great weekend. I'm going to go edit this, put it up. Then I got an IRB meeting and I've got to do some curriculum planning meeting with one of my colleagues for next semester. And as always, I'm thankful for you listening to Rotations and I appreciate every one of you. Please pass it around. Please put it on your social media platforms. Get people interested in listening to Rotations. I want more content, ideas. Um, I've got plenty. They're coming. Uh, and I'm going to do some more interviews. But I really want your input to make this a better educational experience for you. Sorry for the length, but you need to have an idea of the process of this stuff. And I would also encourage you, deeply consider your social media and social platform use. Um, if you're an American, you're listening to this, people have paid tremendous prices for your freedoms. They just have. And you should be free. You should be free to consume what you want, when you want it, how you want it, and not have somebody in Silicon Valley telling you, oh, we don't think this is worth your time, and you can't see it. We're just not going to let you see it. It's not how a free society works. It's very dangerous. It's very manipulative. It's very reflective of communist and totalitarian states, uh, socialist states. Um, think about it. Uh, and with that, I bid you do. I hope you have a great weekend, and um, thank you. Take care.
Expectations is the periodic podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the state of Ohio, the state of West Virginia, the Department of Defense, or any of its agencies, Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication, or any of the agencies associated with these entities. The guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is produced, hosted, and edited by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is sometimes co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the streets. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema or by contacting me, Todd Fredericks, T.R. Fredericks at MeWe. If you comment, please be nice. I have sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater. And finally, I would always acknowledge that Rotations was founded and created by Nisarg Bakshi, Ryan Plow, and Todd Fredericks, all of whom have various intermittent input in the production of Rotations. And we ask always you consider we want it to be the best product that we can give to you. So please tweet, uh, retweet us, post us on your favorite social media platform, send us feedback, ask people to participate in Rotations. We would be grateful for that. It will improve our content and make it a better experience for you. Take care.